Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grog. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Stephen Peitzman, who will discuss kidney research. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grog Science Show. show. Well, the kidneys are one of the most important organs in our body. However, few probably stop to ponder their role in our body, unless of course something untoward happens to them. But the history of kidney disease is a long and fascinating one. And joining us today to discuss the past, present, and future of kidneys is Professor Stephen J. Peitzman. Professor Peitzman is a professor of medicine at Drexel University College of Medicine and a senior medical advisor at the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. Author of numerous articles and books on the subject, his latest work, Dropsy Dialysis Transplant, A Short History of Failing Kidneys, explores the history for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Peitzman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm very pleased to be here. Most people are familiar with the kidneys as an organ, but might not actually know what do the kidneys do. Right. You're quite correct. Most persons don't think very much about their kidneys unless the kidneys create some mischief like making a stone or that sort of thing. But the kidneys have several roles in the body. The most important one, of course, is they make uh, urine. And the role of the urine is to carry away certain metabolic waste products, certain toxins that might get into the body, and even the byproducts of most medications and drugs, or many medications and drugs, are carried off by the kidneys. So in effect, they are filters. They used to be called the great depurators, the filters of the body. Large amount of blood flows through the kidneys, out comes a certain amount of material that should go out, and what needs to be kept in the body stays in the bloodstream. And the kidneys also have an important role in adjusting the body's blood pressure. And oddly enough, the kidneys were assigned the job of regulating the body's red cell mass. So persons with kidney trouble, kidney disease, actually become secondarily, as another consequence, anemic. And finally, the kidneys also no one knows exactly why, we're tasked with the job of finishing the manufacture of vitamin D. Hmm. So that to have good vitamin D levels and good bones, you need sunlight and skin and your kidneys. Effective kidney failure when not treated is largely a syndrome that we call uremia. And it's a syndrome of toxicity based on the buildup of metabolic products. The one that's easiest to measure is called urea and goes back a long ways in, in its ability to be measured, although it is not itself terribly toxic, but we still use it as a label or a tag. When it can't be excreted by kidneys that are in trouble, it builds up in the blood, but so do other substances, not all of which have been identified, that create a, a whole pattern of illness. Very often when it gets severe, nausea, vomiting, sleepiness, twitching, and finally seizures and coma, although nowadays we try not to let people get to that point. So typically when the kidneys fail, do all of its functions fail at the same time? They do, and most of the kidney disease we see is either a very sudden form that's associated with shock and serious infection, very often in the very, very sick, 
intensive care unit patient. The kidneys are very vulnerable to loss of blood flow. And in those kinds of situations, also after serious trauma, the kidneys often shut down. They're a little bit feckless in terms of hanging in there when the rest of the body is very sick. They often shut down for and then recover in a week or two. That's called acute renal failure. Still a very big problem. But most persons with kidney disease have a more slowly progressive type, often associated with diabetes and high blood pressure. And then, as you suggest, the various functions diminish gradually and together. So a person begins to develop early symptoms and also begins to drop the red cell blood count as the substance called erythropoietin, the blood-forming hormone that the kidneys make, is no longer made properly. I see. And so what are the typical treatments then for these failures? Well, it's a very good question. Obviously, we like to identify anything which is a reversible cause of the kidney failure. Some toxicity, occasionally lead poisoning from industrial lead exposure, occasionally certain kinds of infection, sometimes other diseases that can raise the calcium in the body. But many cases of chronic renal failure are related to our lifestyle, in a sense, with obesity and diabetes and hypertension. And once there's some evidence of kidney injury, which is way before anybody feels sick, we know about early kidney injury through the spillage of protein in the urine. That goes back to the 1820s and Richard Bright in England who figured out that persons who had albumin in the urine leaked protein that shouldn't be there had some kind of kidney trouble. He learned that through autopsy studies and we hope not to have to do it that way. Hmm. And we also know about it through subtle blood tests. The blood creatinine level has for a long time been used as a sensitive indicator of loss of kidneys filtering ability. And so these alterations occur way before a person is ill. And so it's good to detect those because we now know that if the chronic or slowly moving kidney disease is associated with high blood pressure or diabetes, as it so often is, at least in the West and Japan and many other places, good tight treatment of blood pressure and blood sugar, diabetes, can at least slow down the worsening of the process and keep a person feeling well and we hope keep a person from needing dialysis to transplant indefinitely or at least for a good long time. So in a way the treatments are not aimed at the kidney directly but they're aimed at whatever process is injuring the kidney, particularly again high blood pressure, diabetes in our current environment. I see. So it's trying to change the lifestyle to lessen the progression of the disease. Well, lifestyle is important certainly if by way of if the kidney injury is by way of diabetes and overweight Losing weight can be important. Certain dietary adjustments can be important. But in fact, a lot of the approach does utilize medications, medications to lower blood pressure, obviously insulin and other medications to adjust blood sugar. And over the last 15 or 20 years, we've learned that certain categories of blood pressure medications are more successful at protecting the kidneys perhaps than others particularly a group called the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, which is quite a mouthful, and a related group called angiotensin receptor blockers. Angiotensin is a substance normally produced by the kidneys, but also by the blood vessels that has a role in adjusting the body's blood pressure. But when in, in excess, it causes overly tight constriction of the arterioles, of small arteries, raises the blood pressure, and it also does some adverse things, uh, harmful things in the kidney. So these particular blood pressure medications are aimed at lowering the substance called angiotensin. And indirectly, that eases the work of the kidneys and helps protect them. But of primary importance in the patient who does have diabetes or hypertension is getting the blood sugar and the blood pressure in good control. 
Besides that, are there any other particular risk factors for developing kidney disease? And I imagine it's rather routine to test for these various markers of possible kidney disease. Yes, almost anybody who has adequate access to some kind of health care will, and that's not everybody, of course, will get annually done a blood screening panel done by the automated analyzers, and they always look at creatinine in urea. So if the physician interpreting it is aware that even small changes can indicate early kidney disease, then it will be found that way. And of course, most persons going to their doctor for an annual assessment will give a urine sample, and easily with the dipsticks we use, we can pick out pretty sensitively if a person has protein in the urine. So either or both of those are early flags about kidney problems. And other risk factors would include some things that are rather surprising and only recently learned about. One is simply overweight itself, although I guess I mentioned that before in conjunction with diabetes. And something we've also learned in recent years is that cigarette smoking, although not a cause of kidney disease, I don't want to give that impression, but if somebody has kidney disease from some other basis, cigarette smoking does speed along the worsening of it. So that's another lifestyle adjustment for many good reasons we try to encourage. So the risk factors are high blood pressure, high blood sugar, overweight, cigarette smoking, and of course there's a myriad of very specific and sometimes more rare causes of kidney disease as in any other disease. There are genetic types. A relatively common one is polycystic kidney disease, which runs in families obviously as a genetic disease. Occasionally an infant is born with a condition called a reflux, where the urine that's supposed to go from the kidneys down the ureters, the tubes that convey the urine from the kidneys to the bladder. Uh, occasionally a child is born with a, a kind of a laxity of the one-way valves that carry the urine where it's supposed to go, and the urine goes back upwards to the kidney, and the kidneys are very sensitive to that, especially if some infection occurs, and that is a thing we call reflux. And much later in life, some injury caused to the kidney in infancy can manifest itself as a more serious kidney problem. Uh, I'm curious, has the incidence of kidney disease increased in recent years? Well, it has, we think, and I'm pretty sure about that. Just to give an example of the consequences, in the United States alone, there are over 300,000 individuals who go to dialysis three times a week because of kidney failure, and that's only, as one says, the tip of the iceberg. There's at least millions of individuals who have early renal problems. Again, not necessarily feeling sick, but detectable by the blood or urine tests. And we think that the frequency of the kidney disease probably has increased largely because of the increase in Western societies of diabetes and high blood pressure. There are probably some other causes of kidney disease that have diminished. At one time, a reaction to a strep throat or a streptococcal bacterial streptococcal skin infection, scarlet fever, was a common cause of kidney problems. And we still see that once in a while, little outbreaks of a certain streptococcal bacterial strain that in an indirect way activates an immune process that links into the kidney, cause of what we call glomerulonephritis, uh, old-term Bright's disease. Mm. We don't see that much anymore, but it's been replaced, unfortunately, by these more modern ailments, diabetes, high blood pressure. So the more common they are, the more common kidney diseases, as well, of course, as heart disease. I mean, you mentioned Bright's disease, and your book actually talks a lot about the history of the study of kidney disease. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about some of the early founders, in particular Richard Bright. Well, Richard Bright was a British physician. He practiced and taught at Guy's Hospital in London. And in, in Europe, or at least in England at that period, and somewhat still today, medical schools were centered more in hospitals and universities. Richard Bright worked in a period when careful observation at the bedside and then correlated with dissection or autopsy when a patient died, when this conjunction, 
careful observation of the patient who's ill, and then if unfortunately the patient dies, looking in the body to find the seat, the hidden seat of the illness. That was the aim of physicians who were really at this time remapping disease, trying to re-understand newly what were the diseases and where did symptoms originate in the darkness of the body. And Richard Bright was a very careful observer. He was a good draftsman. He could draw very well. He had good eyes and a good ability to see and record. And he was very interested in the symptom that was then called dropsy. We now call it edema. It just means swelling up with water. And he discovered that certain individuals at Guy's Hospital with dropsy, but not all, had protein in the urine, which he detected by a very cost-effective technique. He put a little urine in a spoon, and he heated the spoon over a candle. And if a white scum appeared, he concluded there was albumin or protein in the urine, just as the white of an egg coagulates and turns white when you know when you fry it. And then when some of his patients became more ill, he was able to before much laboratory work, purely by observation, put together the whole picture of what we call the uremic syndrome I referred to before. Stomach symptoms, itching of the skin, headache, high blood pressure, which he identifies simply by feeling the pulse in the arm. So he described pretty much what we still consider the uremic syndrome. And then when some of his patients died, he did dissections and along with other individuals at guys who were becoming very adept at dissection and at categorizing the findings. And he discovered that those patients who blew up with fluid, who had dropsy and had protein in the urine, often had a distorted kidney when looked at through autopsies, shrunken and granulated, where some others were kind of puffy, large and white. And he wasn't sure if these were different diseases or different stages of a disease, but he really was the single figure who, in a way, began the understanding of kidney disease and its different relationships. And very much ahead of his time, he set up kind of a program at Guy's Hospital. He made kidney trouble sort of the house disease. He even arranged one summer to reserve certain of the beds there for patients with this disease, and he rounded up interested students to do the case studies and colleagues who were getting interested in laboratory measurements in a very early form. It was very much like what we call a metabolic ward. It was very much like a research ward that otherwise wasn't common until the 1940s or 1950s. Mm. So in that sense, he was quite ahead of his time and set up a tradition so that to this day, Guy's Hospital is, in England is an important site for research in kidney disease. There are many, many others, of course. Others followed him, began to understand the changes in the kidney at the microscopic level. Richard Bright didn't use the microscope, at least not very much. He just looked at the general appearance. He had the, the kidneys painted and then printed in color, beautiful color atlases of pathology that were commonly done at that time. But those who followed him wanted to understand the different kinds of kidney disease at a finer level and began to apply the microscope. Uh, later on, it was possible to measure the blood pressure and, and more carefully and associate that with changes in the kidney. And into the 20th century, 1910, 1920, certain techniques were devised that allowed measurement of chemistries in the blood in relatively small samples that made blood measurement practical. And then we were able to understand the rise in, in the toxic substances, urea, creatinine, as well as the various changes in the body's chemistries, sodium and potassium, that would occur with kidney failure. Uh, I really didn't mention that earlier on, that the kidney also has the job of adjusting very, very precisely the amount of sodium in your blood, in your body, the amount of potassium, has a role in adjusting the amount of calcium. So it's kind of, uh, it's been referred to as not only the great filters, but also the master chemists of the body. Hmm. So beginning in that 
period and then expanding to study in France and Germany and eventually the United States, more and more knowledge was understood about the associations of failing kidneys, kidneys uh, involved with different sorts of diseases. What are some of the more uh, fascinating figures, do you think, uh, besides Bright, that contributed to this work? Well, there was a figure named Thomas Addis. He's kind of a favorite of mine. He was a Scots-born physician, came to the United States around 1910, uh, was recruited by Stanford University School of Medicine out in your state of California, of course, which then was not, not such a big, famous place, but it was seeking to expand its place in medical research. Addis was a precocious laboratory investigator, and he became a master of kidney disease at a very early time in the United States. He established a laboratory and created experimental models of kidney disease in rats to understand the process at that level. He was a meticulous physician and very much interested in his patients' entire well-being. He was a progressive. He was interested in their work, and he was interested in how they were faring when the Depression came. He was uh, actually quite a leftist. But he correlated his observations in his patients with the work that he was doing in the laboratory. And his main treatment, before many drugs were available, was diet. Diet was a very important form of treatment for many diseases in the early part of the 20th century, and we neglect that to some extent now. He was a master of dietetics, and he began to understand that since substances that the kidneys must excrete are largely the breakdown products of protein, he assumed and in a way showed in his animal studies, his rat studies, that too much protein in the diet kind of overworked the kidneys, and if they were injured, kind of further burnt them out. So he adopted a very meticulous, highly precise, low-protein diet. His most famous patient was Linus Pauling. And Linus Pauling, we know, lived to a very, very late age, 89 or 90 or something of that sort. Uh, Linus Pauling developed dropsy or edema in New York City at a speaking engagement. And when he went back to California, he was put in contact with Tom Addis. Pauling, of course, was in Southern California, and Addis was in San Francisco. So a lot of their interaction was by letter, mostly through Pauling's wife, who had herself trained in home economics and was a very scientific cook, as it turns out. So for quite a few years, Dr. Addis at Stanford adjusted gram by gram Linus Pauling's diet. And whether that was effective or whether he was destined to get better anyway, his kidney problem reversed over several years. And of course, he went on to continue his work in chemistry and peace advocacy. So Addis, to me, is a, is a hero and a fascinating figure. And then there are many others. Willem Kolf, physician working in occupied Holland during World War II, kind of a tinkerer by inclination, observing individuals dying and from kidney failure, feeling helpless, was one of several individuals in different places who became intrigued by the idea of building an artificial kidney, a device that at least could clear the toxic substances from the body, even if it could not carry out all the subtle functions of the kidney. And he succeeded in doing so under very difficult circumstances in Holland uh, during the German occupation in the late 1940s. He wasn't sure what was going to happen to him in his program, so he managed to send some of the early kidney machines that he built, artificial kidneys, to other places, England, the United States. And later he emigrated to the United States, and he's here to this day. And that was soon after World War II when he sensed that research in medicine, research in all sorts of science was probably going to proliferate and be very fruitful in the American environment, which really embraced science and invested in it beginning in the 1950s. 
So those are some of the figures that I think anybody who knows anything about the history of kidney disease and its treatment would consider colorful, and so I pay a fair amount of attention to them in my book. I'm curious, uh, having researched the history of kidney disease, what is your perspective on the past, present, and future of both kidney disease and its treatment? Well, the past is like the past of any kind of medical treatment. Good ideas and bad. Ideas that everybody thought were sound in terms of causation or treatment, but later proved to be not so valid. Once you're within a thought system, it's very hard to see that it could be fallacious. We think we have better ways of doing clinical trials now than in the past. The present is a period of lots of continuing research and what I would consider fine-tuning of the two major modalities of treatment. Really, there's three. Let, let, me, let me say three major modalities. Dialysis machines are getting better, but they're still a compromise. They really don't entirely replace the kidney in all of its jobs and functions. And persons even doing well on kidney dialysis are not feeling 100% well all the time. But it's improving. The machines are like any other kind of machine. They get smaller and better, and we learn more and more about how to couple the human being to a machine. That's an interesting process in itself, to make the machine compatible with the human being and the human being able to tolerate all these hours spent coupled to a machine. You know, one can speculate about other machines that we spend a lot of time with, uh, so forth. And in transplantation, better drugs to more specifically reduce the body's natural immune response to this kidney from some other individual. The drugs are getting more precise, less toxic than when I was in training 30 years ago. So that's getting better, but still not a perfect science. And the third modality is what I referred to before, identifying kidney disease very early and trying to combat it and slow its worsening with careful attention to blood pressure, to blood sugar, to cigarette smoking, to any other factor that we can identify. The future, we hope, will be identifying causes at an earlier level for the things that influence the kidney. That is, kidney disease will only diminish in its frequency when we're able to reduce the amount of high blood pressure and diabetes. And I, I'm, I know I sound like a repetitive record or tape using those words, but in fact, they so much represent issues of diet and lifestyle that they present a great challenge, but we'll have less kidney disease if we have less diabetes and hypertension. And further in the future, we hope to have even more specific ways of opposing the body's rejection of the kidney, but not making the body vulnerable to infection by diminishing its overall immune response. And there are individuals, visionary individuals, trying to work out ways to have an implantable kidney that is like a pacemaker for the heart that's in the body, working 24 hours, not what we have now, which is the need for a person either at home to do kidney machine treatments or to go to a kidney machine center three or five times a week. There's different patterns. The future probably doesn't hold for us any simple magic to eradicate all kidney disease because although it ends up behaving the same way regardless of what caused it in the beginning, there's too many different factors. So I think we'll continue to have improvement in what we have now. We hope epidemiologic population approaches to reducing the frequency of diabetes and hypertension, and that will do a great deal. Mm. 
Well, it is very fascinating, I think, history and certainly a very fascinating field. And Dr. Peitzman, I do want to thank you very much for uh, talking about your book, which again is Dropsy Dialysis Transplant, A Short History of Failing Kidneys. Well, I very much appreciate the opportunity to do so with you. And you're just listening to Dr. Stephen Peitzman discussing kidney research. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic dialysis or transplant. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they need to be dialyzed or transplanted. Uh, Dr. Peitzman, you ready to play the game? Yes. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> All right, person number one, O.J. Simpson. Well, it's kind of an uh, odd question, would, um, but I think with his tendency to, to wander about and get in trouble, I would probably tether him to a dialysis machine <laughs> if he needed it. <laughs> probably good to pin him down in one location. Exactly. <laughs> Number two is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Uh, well, from what little I have observed uh, passing occasional television sets, I, I think I might also, if he needed if, uh, kidney treatment, put him on uh, dialysis, but maybe clamp the blood tubes a little bit. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, number three is uh, Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Oh, Bill Gates wouldn't need my advice. Uh, <laughs> if he had uh, kidney problems, he would uh, know exactly what to do. He would get a good kidney transplant. He'd find one family member or fan. We don't like to talk about buying kidneys, but if, he, if that came to that, he could I imagine he could afford that. He could he certainly probably afford a whole new body, I think. That's right. Uh, number four is Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Well, I don't have too much of a, an opinion about Donald Trump. Uh, he's a builder, and so he would probably be inclined to build his own dialysis <laughs> unit, and to which he would be the central figure. Uh, number five is finally the President of the United States, George Bush. Uh, George Bush. Well, he he needs a transplant, but I don't think it's a kidney, actually. <laughs> I'll let you speculate as to what, what might be the more suitable uh, organ to improve his, uh, his outlook. Yes. By the way, I just quickly, you mentioned O.J. Simpson, but there really are some interesting stories, as many, many fans of basketball will know, about basketball stars who have had kidney failure. I didn't really mention that kidney failure, regrettably, is much more common in persons of color, in African-Americans and other persons of color. We don't know exactly why, but it's disproportionately common in black Americans and, and other persons of color. And so there have been, Alonzo Mourning was uh, an individual who came back to the game after receiving a kidney transplant. So there's some very dramatic stories w within the world of sports. Well, I, certainly your book is uh, filled with all those interesting stories. And again, for the audience, if they want to know, the book is called Dropsy Dialysis Transplant, A Short History of Failing Kidneys. Again, Dr. Peisman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. 
Well, thank you for allowing me to give the kidneys some attention. They don't get it very much. Yes. Thank you again. You're welcome. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.